What is going on, everybody? My name is David. This is Free From Missing Out, a podcast about living in a connected world. Before we get into today's episode, I want to do a couple housekeeping items. First off, I want to thank everyone for the support. Those of you who've reached out with feedback and you know comments, I really do appreciate it. Along with that, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're happy to have you. And if you are not new, welcome back. On a related note, our podcast is now on pretty much every platform. I think it's on Google, Spotify, Cast something. I don't know. Cast Hub. I don't know. It does it automatically, but I think the only one we're not on is Apple Podcasts. And that's just strictly because of the amount, the quantity of podcasts you have to have before Apple will let you through their screening process. So we should be up there in the next week or so once we publish this third episode. I am seemingly on track with my weekly releases, uh, but we're going to try and keep it to Sunday or Monday release dates and you know keep it as close to a weekly basis as I can. I'll try and get a couple episodes, you know, two times a week or so. That just depends how busy I am. I'm still working to get all of my social media set up for free from missing out, but we should have that here shortly once I stop procrastinating. But last time on the podcast, we talked about money and you know, how millennials seem to be pretty much screwed. Well, this week we're going to shift gears a little bit and go into politics. And more importantly, how politics has changed with social media and the internet and what it means for us. But before we get into that, you know what we have to do. Without any further ado, let's cue that intro music I found online. So before we get into social media in the internet, we got to go back in time a little bit. We have to go back to 1960 exactly, which this was the sighting. Well, sighting? Yeah, no, no. This was the time, hmm? not time. This was the year in which the first political televised debate happened between Nixon and Kennedy. So this was a crucial point because up until this, the only way the candidates were communicating with their constituents was in person, over the phone, or over the radio. So the fact that this debate was being televised was a complete shift in how not only the campaigns work, but the role of media within our elections and politics. I don't know if this was necessarily a good thing. And this will be an ongoing theme as we talk through TV, social media, and the internet. But there was a book by Sidney Krause. It was called Televised Presidential Debates. And according to her, TV was actually causing the public to be more disenchanted with politics. What she seems to mean by that is it was pulling back a lot of the fascination that used to exist by showing so much of what was going on. And not only that, but now TVs and networks were showing their opinion as well. She quantifies this by show, um, citing voter turnout, and it's overall been on a 
not a drastic, but a gradual decline since 1960, which was when TV first made its appearance in politics. Save for, looks like 2004 and 2008, there was a spike. Now, that could be for various reasons, social media, whatever you want to call it. But I don't know if this directly points that TV caused the decline in voter turnout. But something was definitely changing. And I think a lot of this was because networks were now becoming the messenger for political messages rather than the politicians. Instead of hearing a politician speak live or a direct broadcast over the radio, it was now being filtered through news and these networks. So you were hearing a soundbite and clips similar to now rather than the raw audio. Networks had their say and they had their opinions, but politicians were able to also start leveraging TV to drive change. I think a very clear example was this was in 1981 where President Ronald Reagan made a TV address. Good evening. I'm speaking to you tonight to give you a report on the state of our nation's economy. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. And what he was asking for was he was a, it was a direct plea to Americans to help with a budget and tax package. This had stalled in the Senate and the House, I think the Senate specifically, and nothing was getting done. So the president went on TV to actually implore Americans to help this pass through. And the crazy thing was, after that, Congress and delegates, they received a flood of mail from constituents trying to, foot, to, put, yeah, trying to push this bill through. And it ultimately ended up getting passed. So it really shows how it was being leveraged by politicians already to drive actual change in politics. Along with this, transparency was also increasing. You know, C-SPAN, I'm sure most of you have heard of C-SPAN, but if you haven't, it's the network that broadcasts what goes on within Congress. C-SPAN started televising these, you know, congressional hearings, congressional, like all, everything that was happening in our government was now open for a viewing audience. Now, this could be seen as having pros and cons, because there definitely seemed to be an element of theater that started appearing within Congress and everything now that it was being televised and politicians were aware of that. But that's a natural byproduct of transparency. When you're constantly being watched, you're going to not you know, naturally put on a show. So what does this have to do with social media? You know, We're talking about TV instead of the internet. When we're living in the age of Facebook Live videos, Instagram stories, that all of our politicians are adapting. But I think it's clear to see the relation between the introduction of TV in 1960 and the impact that social media is having on politics today. But before we get to social media, we had to take a look at what has allowed social media to foster into what it is today, and that is the advent of the internet, obviously. So what was happening on the internet? How was it getting into politics? Well, like anything, it was a bit gradual. So in 1996, you started seeing candidate websites coming up, which was a different way that candidates were you know, projecting their viewpoints, allowing 
constituents to interact with them. And then in 1998, soon after, you started seeing email outreach, which has become commonplace today with you sign up for a list, you know, email list and a distribution list, and suddenly you're getting hundreds of emails a day. You started seeing more of that around 1998. And then in the year 2000, you started seeing a rise in online fundraising where campaigns were directly connecting money or not connecting, collecting money over the internet. Even though all this change was happening, it seems like in that the internet was more drastically changing fundraising, but not necessarily the actual outreach. So despite the fact that we had these websites and we had email, it wasn't really being widely used or utilized other than to collect money. So back in 2004, there was a study done by Brigham Young in Harvard University that found that less than 4% of voters were being contacted over email. So while it existed and this data collection of voters' emails was happening, it wasn't being used. Even though this was happening and no one was being emailed or contacted over the internet, internet donations were skyrocketing. And while they were skyrocketing, those donations weren't being used on internet marketing. Internet marketing actually only accounted for 1% of media outreach. And this was based on an estimate done by PQ Media. But that means that even though the donations were coming in over the internet, politicians and campaigns were choosing to invest it in tried and true platforms such as radio, TV, and paper media. Obviously, in addition to just fundraising in a campaign, the internet also started changing our landscape, and that being you know, the voter. So this is when you started seeing a rise in the online groups and communities that you hear more about today, about all this group think and echo chambers. This was really the founding point of that where people were starting to find like-minded people on the internet to have conversations and dialogue with. But it wasn't drastic, according to Pew surveys, in that they were having you know discussions and finding people with their political viewpoints, but it wasn't turning into much you know, partisanship or manifesting itself in any real way. So it seems there was definitely a change happening with the internet it was definitely causing a change in fundraising and how we reach out to people. But a lot of it hadn't completely manifested itself yet. It wasn't serving as a way for bringing new voters to the polls. It wasn't serving as that new platform for debate or outreach to voters that it was seemingly able to do easily. It just wasn't being adopted. You know, Looking back at 2004, it's easy to see that it became that very quickly, but it had a quite a slow takeoff. But but once it did take off, oh God, you can see how quickly it escalated based on where we are today and how prevalent social media is now in politics. So let's get into that. We talked about TV, we've talked about the internet, both of which seemingly had small but impactful steps towards where we are today with social media. Yes, social media and politics. This new world that we live in where policy is being tweeted out and outreach videos are being broadcasted over Instagram stories rather than televised events. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Beto O'Rourke. Reach out to his constituents 
at the dentist. Uh, so I'm here at the dentist and we're going to continue our series on the people of the border. I'm here with Diana, my dental hygienist. Um, Diana's going to tell us a little bit about growing up in El and yes, that was a dental drill in the beginning. For those of you who haven't seen the video, he was actually sitting in a dental chair in, you know, live streaming him at the dentist talking about politics. So this is clearly where the world is heading. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you decide if that is a good or bad outcome of, you know, political outreach is that we see just like we see our friends at all points of the day, we are now starting to see our politicians at every point of their lives. And I think that's on their part in an effort to make it seem more personable and relatable. But I don't know if it's becoming that. And he isn't the only one. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has made quite the name for herself on social media. She has Instagram live stories all the time, has a lot of debates on Twitter, and is really pioneering this whole engaging of constituents over social media. And obviously our president as well has not not as necessarily a lot has focused on the live streaming, but is definitely enacting, you know, policy announcements, campaign issues all over Twitter. So it really is, you know, the future of policy is being driven over posts, whether that's a live video or a tweet. I'm not sure the medium makes much of a difference. Policy decisions in these debates are happening real time before decisions are even being made. In addition to that, the money is also following the action. So not only are politicians spending more time on social media, they're also spending more money. In fact, Adweek did a survey and found that politicians and campaigns are dedicating around 9% of their advertising budget to social media. And this was compared to the 1% for entirety of internet outreach back in 2004. So clearly they think there's an upside. They think there's going to be a return on the investment for throwing this money at social media. And I can't say I blame them. With our generation being the most likely to get their news through social media and be connected at all times, it makes sense to find your voters where they're going to be, which is on their phones and on their apps. But only time will tell if this will play out in the way they expect or if it'll only you know, continue to drive divide. But we'll get to that in a second. So in addition to the survey by Adweek that shows how politicians are spending money interacting with social media, there's also a large study done by, what was it, Achieve Research, it was titled How Engagement Behavior is Changing. And it was also titled, not titled, it was about millennial impact. So how we are changing engagement for social media in politics and everything else. Some scary statistics out of this, my little bad note for the podcast, similar to the money one, is 70% of them, 70% of them, us, said they were more excited about an idea and motivated to do it when their friends agreed with it. In addition to that, 68% said they don't make major decisions without consulting with other people. I think this is being presented in a bad light because it's being taken in the context of politics. 
But overall, I don't know if it's a necessarily entirely negative message. I don't know if it's bad that people are seeking advice from other people before making major decisions. But I would agree it is maybe not great that most of us seem to be, I guess, skewed or biased towards what our friends and peers like rather than our own opinion. Once again, this is a double-edged sword because if you surround yourself with you know, diverse thought and different ideas, it might be good to hear their opinion and help it shape your viewpoint, especially if you're not completely informed. But like most of us who seek out groups, which of that of which we feel a connection to and that that we have, you know, similar ideas to, I think it does create these small echo chambers where we are constantly bouncing off and supporting ideas rather than offering critical judgment or assessment. Now let's but let's step back to social media for a second and Instagram and Twitter. Why are people so allured by it? Why are politicians you know, live streaming so much and tweeting so often? Well, I think primarily it cuts out the middlemen. And no longer do they have to worry about filtering their viewpoint through TV or publications where they risk getting their ideas skewed or taken out of context. They can talk directly with people. Now, the caveat to this is when you're live and talking with people directly, you don't have that chance to filter yourself. And that's the difference between Instagram Live versus you know maybe composing a tweet, which I can't say everyone seems to be proofreading their tweets, but we can we can ignore that for a second. This political interest is so high that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC actually taught a class on digital storytelling in Twitter very shortly after arriving to Congress. And this was very well received, but I think the overall message was that it's very clear that most of our politicians aren't actively running their own social media, but rather are using 20-somethings to run it for them. And that's very clear when you hear politicians talk versus tweet. You can, you can clearly see that disconnect with most of us. But how did that class work? Well, Another case in point, similar to Beto O'Rourke at the dentist, let's turn it to Elizabeth Warren to show what she learned at digital storytelling class. Just across the line, over into Iowa, first organizing meeting is going to be, I think, in a couple hours. This going to be fun. But I'm sure you're still wondering, was it going to be fun? I'm headed out for my first event here in Iowa. This is going to be fun. And I'm sure after that, you, like I, am riveted to this story and curious as to how it came to a conclusion. I talked lots of questions. We did a whole photo line and uh, we had fun. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel motivated now. And I definitely had fun. But aside from, you know, very cringy political outreach... Social media is also not being used completely for good. It's not just being used by our politicians to spread political messages or our voter base. You know, the Senate Intelligence Committee found that there was a large-scale attack on our social media from other countries. And this was, you know, spreading misinformation, but it was all centered around leveraging the algorithms of social media to make sure that certain messages were being pushed to the top of our news feeds. 
this is clearly a problem. And this has set the stage for social media turning into a political battleground. So I'm sure if you've been paying attention to the news or even mildly paying attention to social media, you've been seeing this argument coming from both sides of the aisle that we need to have some control or we need to hold these media companies, social media companies, accountable for what's happening on their platforms. Now, ironically, you're seeing the same accusation being thrown out by conservatives and liberals that these platforms, specifically, typically what they're referencing is Facebook and YouTube, they're claiming they're radicalizing people on both ends. More specifically, the left seems to be claiming that these echo chambers online are fostering radicalism that is manifesting itself in terror attacks and different types of attacks throughout our country, while the right is claiming that these media companies are functioning as a way to silence conservative viewpoints and that they're removing people from the platform who are not radicals, but rather just mainstream conservative pundits. So which is it? I'm sure there's credit in that we could give to both of them. And so for now, we're going to focus on what they're ultimately claiming, which is that these media companies are proving only capable of radicalizing people rather than promoting thoughtful exchange of ideas. And there may be some truth to this. According to an article about the Science Center at UC Berkeley, in the past 20 years, there's been a jump from 10% to 20% of adults identifying with one set of beliefs, i.e. liberalism or conservatism, rather than a mix of the two. Which, when you're talking about a 100% increase in something in that short of time, people should take notice to this. We're more or less becoming more divisive in our thought, as you've seen the rise of social media. But is legislating it the answer? Even if we can show that the outcome is happening, and that people are becoming more biased towards either the left or the right, can you effectively legislate social media without infringing on people's ability to share ideas and speak what they want to talk about? I don't know. I think it's a very fine line to walk between silencing people and also making sure you're getting appropriate control over who has access to the platform. And if we're allowing foreign countries to interfere with elections or spread misinformation, which I think would be a huge problem. Now, there's definitely something we can do. Companies can take a stand here. And even if it's as simple as improving the algorithms so they can't so easily be gamed by you know, putting in specific tag words and length of videos and other key metrics to get videos pushed to the top. But I don't think regulating the speech on individual platforms by individuals can lead to a good place. So what now? What's my take on this whole situation? Is it like money? Are we doomed to fall into the social media trap where we're only going to become more biased and eventually just unable to agree on anything or have a dialogue? I'd like to think the outcome isn't that bleak and eventually we will be able to find common ground and leverage social media to be good, but it's on us. It's just a tool in the end, and it is only as good as the people who use it. And now you can argue that this is a technology issue and the burden should be on social media and our government to legislate these discussions, but ultimately it's a people problem. There can be as much misinformation as you want and 
you know, outside interference into social media in our politics. But it ultimately comes back to people spreading that information and people here believing it to vote for it. So it really does come back to being a people issue in the end. I think one of the most effective ways to combat this is practice something that's called AOT, which is actively open-minded thinking. So research has shown that on both sides, so conservatives and liberals, this decreases polarization and actually makes you better able to respond to other points of view, whether it be online, in person, you're better able to articulate your meaning and have an effective dialogue rather than just getting angry and pretty much telling the other side to shut up. On top of this, we need to be more critical. You know, I think we very loosely share things and republish other articles and post viewpoints without recognizing the impact of it. I think social media has become such a norm that we don't actually hold the gravity of what we're doing in the same seriousness as in person. Sharing something online is no different than handing someone an article. You're ultimately putting your stamp on it, saying this is something either I agree with or I support. So I think you only owe it to yourself to do proper vetting of anything you share. And I, I, this isn't supposed to be directed just at you know fake news or anything else, but it has to do with any statistic or any, you know, any finding that you're putting your name on on social media. So we owe it to ourselves to be more critical, to do more reading, and actually vet some of these things we're looking at before we let it affect our opinion. On top of that, I think we need to be more understanding of other viewpoints. And this problem is becoming very real. So Pew Research did a survey and found that currently 36% of Republicans and 27% of Democrats believe the other side is a threat to the nation's well-being. And come on, we can't be like this going forward or nothing will get done. If you actively believe that the other side is trying to destroy the country, you need to evaluate your viewpoint, not them. If we can't come to the table and have a dialogue and accept that the other side is smart as well, It's only going to breed failure on social media and in the real world. It seems that a byproduct of seeing these other crazy points of view on social media and being always connected to the world at large, it makes us want to shut it out. And because we're exposed to not only examples, mild liberals or mild conservatives, we're also exposed to extremists on both sides. It makes us, as we try to shut out the extremists, we also shut out moderates. And we need to fight that urge and instead engage with people. Instead of threatening to unfriend anyone who disagrees with you or not listening to any point of view because you already know the answer, step back for a second and have a conversation. Even if it's on social media, and maybe social media isn't the best place to have that conversation, but then say that. Say it's not something you want to discuss here, but you're happy to talk about it offline or privately. It's on us in the end. Social media is never going to go away. So we need to be the ones who rein it in and use it for the right purpose. And as Elizabeth Warren always says, This is going to be fun. I think that's about all for today, guys. This has been Free From Missing Out, a podcast about living in a connected world. I think in the future, I'm going to revisit this issue. I think politics is becoming increasingly involved in this connected world, and it's becoming increasingly important as we head towards 
you know, the next presidential election and, you know, constant local elections as well. But let me know your thoughts on if you guys enjoyed this and what topics you want to talk about in the future. But until that, right, um, have a good one, guys, and see you next time.